Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. So friends, we have a really great interview today. This is Ren Stefano or Lauren Stefano, as you may know her, with her many successful books. Today we're talking about her newest book, How I'll Kill You, which is about three murderous triplets and the romantic element, the man who thinks that he's in a romance novel while they know he's in a thriller. Yeah, it is such an interesting <laughs> book. I, you know, it's it's meaty, it's it's suspenseful. It has good characterization. So I can't wait to talk to Ren today. And there are all these incredible themes of power and control and who knows what when. And I just, I loved talking about that. And I loved reading this book and seeing how the sentences are so beautiful even while talking about scary stuff, which to me implies that this is an author who just is in full control of everything. Mm -hmm. But then talking about how not all of her books landed and how it wasn't just this straightforward, put it on the page, everyone says it's perfect, you know, rubber stamp on the way. She actually did a lot of editorial work on this. And I thought that was so inspiring that, you know, yes, it's hard for everyone, but also it's hard for everyone, which is right. optimistic. Right. I think I think sometimes writers, that, you know, assume that once you get the agent or one book deal that, that it's just smooth sailing from there. And often it isn't. It's just a launch pad for more opportunity. Yeah. They see these overnight successes. They don't see the hard part. And then they have these incredibly unrealistic standards for themselves. And I see authors being so hard on themselves in a way that's not even possible. You know, they're like, oh, I didn't get a New York Times bestseller within six months of starting writing. Uh, I must be a failure. I must be bad at this. None of that is true. And I just, it makes me sad that people think that it's going to be straightforward in that way. So if you want to hear about an incredibly successful writer who also had to go through the process of really working on her work and making conscious decisions and going along with edits, uh, this is the interview for you. So one thing that she does really well is edit her own work. And if you would like to learn to think like an editor, to not have to pay someone thousands of thousands of dollars and hope they have the answer for you, because you yourself, you know your book best. We are doing a three-day workshop. You might remember Sharin from our free class, Your Path to Publication, a couple weeks ago. It's still up. You can still go listen to it. We'll put the link in the show notes. But we're doing a three-day workshop with Sharin, and it is three days of classes three days of workshop and support, a Q&A, a live pages feedback panel um, with uh, with Susan Chang, who used to work at Tor. You're going to get the experience of learning how to see your work in a new way, learning how to bring the most out of your work, and then giving yourself the best possible chance. Because even if you can't spend thousands of dollars on an editor, you still can learn how to become that developmental editor for yourself. Right. And I think it's so important that you learn to do this yourself. I think some people think, oh, I'll just get a rough draft down and then I will have someone else edit my book. And of course, that's that, that can be a great tool to use. But in the end, this is your work. You making the decisions around your own editorial process, but informed decisions, you know, decisions that um, are based on, you know, like 
just true craft. That's what this is going to be all about. And so as always with our events, we have three days. Replays are always available. Um, You can go at your own pace. You can pop in two out of the three days. We always want our events to be what works best for you. So you can just, you know, like take the three days for however you would like to take them. Yeah, you have 30 days to view everything. Um, We know a lot of you are in time zones where you'd have to get up at two in the morning to watch anything live. Like we applaud you if you do. We love if you do that, but we don't want you to have to do that. So everything is just go at your own pace. Don't need to rush. Rewind, fast forward, take notes, all of that. Just going back to how people sometimes use developmental editors, it's tax season. It reminds me of how some people just throw a box of receipts at their accountant and are like, deal with this. Don't be that writer who just throws like a huge box of paper at an editor and says, deal with this. Learn to be somebody who gets a little bit closer. So at least all of the edits are to your vision too. Julie, are you laughing at me? Because I threw a box of he said an accountant once. Oh, I was just, I was just wondering. <laughs> we know that I don't like math or taxes. Anyway. I know, I know. <laughs> so, Nobody um, does. Get started. Don't procrastinate. You'll just stress yourself out. Um, so yes, so that's coming at $49. So it is very reasonable. And so we hope to see you there. Yes, we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but yes, that is April 11th through 13th on your own schedule. And we hope to see you there. Now here's Lauren. Lauren, it's such a pleasure. I remember reading Wither and being so impressed with how you made something feel fresh in a dystopian world. And I feel like one of the things I like so much about your writing is that you combine all these different feelings in one place, which makes it feel new and interesting and not just like a lot of dystopians then felt like the world is ending too bad, but yours felt like all this other stuff was happening too. And I just thought that was Thank you so much. I really, really love that. Thank you. Yeah, we are here because you're launching a very new book entitled How I'll Kill You. Tell us your inspiration for this amazing project. True crime podcasts. (laughs) I think I was just consuming so much true crime and it just really made me think about the serial killer psyche and how many of them just operate completely solo. And sometimes you might see couples or you might see siblings, family members that are serial killers. But I started to wonder where would the loyalties lie? And especially if you have three, there's the twos company, three is a crowd. And even among three very close sisters, it's always going to be the case that two are a little closer to each other than the third. And that might shift and and change with time. And I really wanted to know how it would be that three people have such an incriminating secret that would take all of them down together and and how that would impact their dynamic and the fact that they just can't get out of this relationship. It's so interesting too, because progressive as publishing tries to be, I think there is a lot of good hearted effort. I still find that there's a lot of pressure for female characters to be likable. And your characters are likable, but they are also people. Can you talk about that balance? Well, I think that's what people are like too, right? People are in, we live in this really interesting digital age where everything that we put out is a performance of some sort. So we don't necessarily go online and and talk about our actual day, but we try to pick the highlights or the hobbies or just that aspect. And for this, this is a character who outwardly pretends to be absolutely perfect, So if this story was told from her target's perspective, he's just met this perfect woman. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's funny. She pulls him out of this dark space that he's been in. But in her head, she's calculating how to get rid of a body, the best places to dispose, 
how to kill somebody and she's romanticizing it, but she's also, I think, incredibly, incredibly honest because it's her own head. So there's no, no expectation of an audience. And she talks very practically about all of her intentions. And that's something I really have a lot of fun putting on the page. I can't wait to ask you about research and your Google search history. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) But before that, can you tell us how you got your agent and how you envisioned your publishing career and made it happen? So my agent, we are going back to 2008. So way what back. a time to find an agent too. So much was happening in publishing right then. Not for me. <laughs> we, I, I was a recent college grad. I had a BA in English and I was thinking, do I need a PhD? What do I need to do in order to be successful? And I, I felt like a lot of people do. I think when they graduate college, I was just pushed out of a nest with no idea how to get my career started. And I was also just in a dark time in my life. I was grieving somebody I had just lost and I was writing, I think, what I thought was really creative and profound literature, but in retrospect was actually, I think, very weepy and just my way of processing what I was going through. And I sent out a book to about 100 something, I want to say 150 agents, and it was either all rejections or just no response, which is understandable looking back at the book now. But my agent, um, not my agent at the time, she was the one who wrote back and said, you know, this is not the book, but you have a lot of talent and I'm really interested in seeing what you do next. And that was the only interest I had really gotten that seemed sincere and seemed really geared at me personally, as opposed to just the, you know, the good natured, keep going, keep trying (laughs) letters you get um, in form of rejection. But I, I was like, okay, I have to write another book. I have to take this really seriously. I have to make this agent happy because she's the only one who believes in me right now. And so I did, I wrote another book and I really got her interest. She offered me a contract and this is 2008, which is, it's hard to believe that that was so long ago. It doesn't, it doesn't feel that long ago, but that book didn't sell either. And we had a couple more. And by 2010, that's when I wrote Wither, which ended up being my debut, which was just so much fun. And over the years, I've had, you know, a collection of young adult and middle grade and picture books. And I knew in the back of my mind, I wanted to go back to trying to write an adult because that was what I was trying for. But the market changed so much and I changed so much in about 10 years, you know, that I started to wonder what genre I wanted to tackle. And my agent was with me, thank God, every step of the way. And she just happens coincidentally and fortunately for me to be a huge, huge fan of thrillers and represent a lot of them. So she was really able to give me some honest feedback in, in that market too. Okay. This makes me so happy on a lot of levels, but the thing that sticks out to me, to me the most is that writers often think if an agent says, not this one, send me the next one, that they're just making stuff up. I don't understand why people think agents are making stuff I up. I always thought is, that. This is such, why? This is I don't know. a beautiful example that they're not making stuff up and it can really, really work out. Mm-hmm. No, they're not making that up. I don't, I don't think an agent would say that if they don't mean that, especially because they they get so many submissions. And a part of um, something I do as kind of a side hustle is I coach writers who work on query letters and I try to help them at, at the very least get some feedback and response and say, okay, so this particular idea that you have, I don't know, I can't promise you that it's publishable, but what I can do is I can help you get the best stuff on the page because if an agent says no, there's still a really good chance that they might like something about you. They might like your voice or your ideas and they might want you to come back. 
work. Yeah, definitely. So it's lovely, lovely to have that. So I can be like, none of you believe me, but (laughs) (laughs) it's true. It's true for sure. So when I was researching you, I went on Instagram and then I wasted all kinds of time on your crochet posts. Mm -hmm. And I got really kind of obsessed by thinking about the correlation between creative minds, right? And so I'm wondering if you find any correlation, creative correlation between when you're using your hands to when you're crafting a book. So I think this, my therapist might have a lot to say about this, (laughs) but I definitely have an all-in personality. So I decide... All right. Okay. I'm looking at all these books on the shelf and all these, you know, really beautiful blankets that are being crocheted. And I know that the person who wrote those books, the person who crocheted those blankets, they have a brain, like I have a brain, they figured out how to do it. I'm going to figure out how to do it (laughs) in my way. It might be different, but I'm going to figure it out. And when I started crocheting, it took me a week just to learn how to cast on, (laughs) just to make the slip knot. And we're talking something that Boy Scouts do, right? (laughs) And I think on day one to get their little badge to tie a slip knot, took me about a week to learn how to do that. And it was a week of this is all I'm going to focus on. And eventually I learned, learned how to make a chain, learned how to make a row, learned how to make a swirl, learned all the things. And I think writing is is very similar. I'm going to write a book. I don't know if it's going to be any good. I don't fully know what I'm doing. I don't know how to get started, but this is my personality until it's finished. And that's, I think that's a method I apply to anything that I'm pursuing. I think it's, it's like just tenacious, right? And I think when I was looking at just the amazing things that inspired you, I was inspired. It's, it's just fascinating. I'm wondering if you get writing ideas as well when you're using your hands. Yeah, I think I do. I, it tends to happen when my brain is completely switched off. So if I'm sitting at the desk and I'm really trying hard to come up with an idea or I'm reading books and I'm trying to figure out what I can draw from the genre I want to write in, nothing ever happens. Nothing ever happens. It's always, I I turn on a podcast, I turn on a video, I put on some music, I start crocheting. I just am sitting, I'm just staring into space. I'm trying to fall asleep, whatever it is. My brain is completely off and my guard is down. And that's when something will come to me. It's frustrating because you do want to control that, but you can't. Okay. I can't wait any longer. Can you please tell us about your Google search history and how much you worry about the FBI coming for you? Well, what's really interesting is it was, I I have to credit, um, I would say Reddit forums because you can't just Google how to get rid of a body and expect a Google result that's, that's viable. (laughs) So it was a lot of people speculating in message boards. Well, here's how I would do it. And some of the, some of the ways were really out there. Things that just did not seem plausible. Like first you're going to need a basement in the woods where nobody ever goes. So you're going to have to buy a house and then you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do that. And things that logistically in my head seemed like too much work. So I had to think about practically how would my character get away with this? And, and also it's not so much that this is a book about a woman who's burying bodies constantly, but doing a lot of planning or reflecting and saying, well, back in this state, when my sister killed her boyfriend, this is what I did. And this is how I got rid of it. So there was a lot of gory searches, some of which I used, some of which I ended up disregarding, but it, 
It was a lot. Um, and I, I would say my Google search history is probably suspect. And I would say to any police or FBI, um, if you find suspect search history, just find out if they're working on a novel. First. <laughs> if anyone's, if anyone's spying on my, my search history. <laughs> I am convinced oh that they know that this is a thing. I mean, they, they must know that there are a lot of true crime writers and podcasters out there. And there's probably someone there just to disregard stuff like, yeah, they're clearly working on a creative project. Leave them alone. Yeah, well, I, I did see in the news there was a man who had murdered his wife and I think it was the prosecuting attorney was just reading off his search history and the time and it was quite literally 401 a.m. How to get rid of a body. 405. What does luminol do? 415. How to dismember. And it was like it went on for like five minutes. She was reading his search history, and I was like, my guy, what are you doing? Um, so I, I think that that was definitely enough to put him away. I don't know how that turned out, but yeah, it, Google is just a very interesting tool. Oh my gosh, I read it. I love it so much. So let's dig into these sisters. So we have Moody, um, we have Iris, and we have Jade, who is the narrator, triplets. And I found them, I'm a former teacher, so I've done all the child development, you know, mm -hmm. courses and all of that stuff. I found their story such like a study in nurture versus nature, you know, so you had one sister that kind of had a more stable upbringing, the other two that did not. Um, so did you rely on that concept to complete this book? Because I felt like that really happened like just perfectly for like how I've seen it play out with kids that, you know, have been separated. Yeah. So I, when I started to think about the three sisters, one of the questions I couldn't answer right away was why, why would they do this? And I thought, well, it must be about control in some way. And they're 25, which is very young, right? To be figuring yourself out, trying to figure out if you want a family, if you want to go to college, all the things like that. And I realized they needed to be apart from each other. They needed to have three separate childhoods. And the best way to accomplish that was foster system. So they were, and I think it, it says a lot about the foster system too, and the three of them, they were just treated like props their entire life. When they were abandoned as infants, the media loved them. They made the talk show circuits because whoever would abandon identical triplets and, and nobody comes forward. It's a mystery and everyone wants to tune in and they get ratings. And when that gets old and they start to grow up, they're real people and they're just tossed about. They're just, nobody wants three children in the foster system they found. It's hard to keep siblings together. And one of them, Jade, she ends up just by random chance in a really supportive nuclear structure. But she looks over at her sisters and she sees how miserable they are. And she feels guilt and she tries to sabotage her happiness and, and does a pretty good job of that. And even in her adulthood, now while she should be off finding a life for herself, finding an identity for herself, she's taking care of these two sisters that she feels did not get the opportunities that she did. So it was a, it all just kind of ended up tying in in a bigger way than I anticipated. That's so interesting. I wondered if it was a plan from the beginning, but it made perfect sense. And actually, I think really heightened the book for me. And just as like a comment, I really loved how you brought Colin in too, which would be like a, what is it called? If you're in the foster care system, foster like a, a foster brother um, and, and how grounding he was. And it just kind of just showed, you know, once again, the difference in the upbringing that there, there were ties and there were that like stability within that character's life. I thought that was genius. Thank you. 
So um, we really liked how this is scary, but there's also such a strong romantic element. Edison was a great character, um, the love interest. Can you talk about how writers can balance the two scary thriller and romance? Well, I think it kind of, it. this goes back to true crime, but what inspired that dynamic was when you have somebody who commits a murder, a lot of the time, the, the neighbors and the family come out and say, this was the guy that was fixing the kids' bikes on the street. This was a nice guy. And I really liked the idea that from Edison's perspective, Edison being her target victim, it's a love story because I had somebody asking me, why don't you write a dual narrative? And I said, because it'd be half of a just total romance novel. And from her perspective, it's this dark thriller where she's on the hunt. She's trying to kill him, but she's, it's the whole process of just luring him in. And so I think for readers it's, or for writers rather, who want to write something in that, in that realm, it's think about how you want this character to be perceived by others and make sure that there's a lot of that and then get into their head and really tell us their intentions. Did you ever get pressure to fit this neatly into a genre box? No, I didn't. I, what I did get pressured to do was to be a little more gritty with it. I think an earlier draft was a little bit nicer um, and an ending was a little bit neater and kinder than what it ended up being. So there's a line in here that I absolutely love. A young girl who is just quickly texting someone to confirm that, yes, this adult is supposed to pick her up from school. And I love how Jade describes Edison as muscular, tall, confident male. The world hasn't treated him the way it has treated even the youngest of girls, and so he never learned caution. Mm-hmm. And I just, I thought that was such a lovely line, and I wondered how you think about how power is distributed in your book and in the world. Well, it's, it's interesting because growing up, I I lived on a street with a lot of kids my age. And two of my closest friends were these two brothers who live next door. And I this was the era in the 90s of little girls being kidnapped on TV all the time. I was watching Unsolved Mysteries. I was watching Dateline when I was seven or eight and thinking I could be riding my bike and somebody's just going to open a van and pull me inside and I'm going to be gone forever. And that was a very real fear I had. And when I was playing outside, catching bugs and playing baseball with these two boys across the street, not a fear in their heads, not a single thing they worried about. And so for Jade, she knows that she's a serial killer. She knows that her sisters have done these really violent things to men twice their size. They know what they're doing. And she sees Edison and he's just this tall, very confident guy who never locks his doors. Nothing bad in that regard has ever happened to him. He's never feared for his safety. And then the young woman who's doing the texting is Edison's 13-year-old stepdaughter. And even at 13, she knows the world's not totally safe. I'm not just going to get in somebody's car. And I think this is Jade's perspective. She she worries when Edison's stepdaughter shows up because here's somebody who's smart. Here's somebody who's observant. Even as a child, she's going to put the seed of caution in his head. I think that's so interesting too, because you've got one perspective. The female perspective is a thriller. The male perspective is a romance. That can kind of mirror how we experience life too. You know, guys are like, everything's fine. What are you possibly worried about? <laughs> most of the time when we go on first dates, the thought of murder usually comes mm-hmm. up for most women or the possibility of how do I not get murdered? Mm-hmm. And and it's 
It's so interesting because you ask men about general safety tips and they have no idea why we do all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's almost as if we're living in two different genres all the time. Right. Right. Like the idea, you know, like I have my friend's Snapchat locations. I know where they are. Yeah. Back back in my dating days, I definitely would share a pin. Be like, this is where I am. If if my car is found, if anything happens, I did not leave my life behind. It was always in the back of my head for sure. I kind of found it as a coming of age story, mm-hmm. um, which I don't, I don't think is like an obvious theme because uh, we have so many other things going on here. But I, I think it's a story of really, uh, you know, as we all move through our 20s, we all have to figure out like where we stand in the world, like separate from our families. And, you know, I think you created so many themes that you could bite on and gnaw on and chop off here. Um, Do you have a favorite theme in this book? So I think it's probably that you can always be taken by surprise because the, so Jade, what makes her a little bit smug and a little bit confident throughout the book is that she has this ability to clean up a crime scene and she, she can see five moves ahead for pretty much anyone in her life. And there are a couple of things that happen that she does end up having to clean up unexpectedly, but she handles it very calmly. And she even has the thought in her head that, you know, I don't look like much, but I could, I could take you down. And when Edison is protective of her, just in that typical way, she's thinking in the back of her mind, well, I could, I could probably protect us both. Like she has that knowledge about herself, but by the end of the story, even she is taken pretty wildly aback by some things that happen. And I think it's the people she trusted the most that surprised her in that way and really caught her off guard. I love the concept of a character that doesn't look like much, but you can kind of sense something in them so that it like, you know, it changes the way you walk. It makes it less likely that people will mess with you. I used to think about passages in books like that when I was in places where I was afraid. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it would make me stand up a little bit straighter and go a little with a little bit more purpose and at least just look like I wasn't like, oh, la la la, someone mm-hmm. kill me, you know. And I, I think that's so interesting, like th- that energy and embodying that can can make such a difference. Um, I have so I have such an anxiety around crowds. And so I I really don't like being in a crowded city and I don't like being in a crowded train or things like that. And there was a time in my 20s where I was going to New York a lot. It's not that far away from me. It's just a quick train ride. And I started to develop this kind of walk where I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk really fast, eyes dead ahead. I'm not going to be approachable. And what ended up happening is people started asking me for directions because they thought I was from there. Cause I think it was <laughs> too much confidence. I was getting a lot of people just, excuse me, can you tell me how to get? And I was like, I don't know. I'm not from here. <laughs> and I think they probably thought I was lying, but yeah, I, I guess that, that is something I do too. I try to be, um, when I'm scared or when I'm worried, I try to be just unapproachable. It's almost like a shell that you you build. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you know, you learn all the little body language things like, you know, mm-hmm. keep your chin parallel to the sidewalks. You don't look haughty, so no one wants to hurt you, but you don't mm-hmm. look like a victim. Like, yeah. you know, the um, if someone crashes into you, don't automatically say, I'm sorry, even though women are socialized too, because that's how the serial killers find you. Mm-hmm. You know, like that we know all these. Oh, hello, other cat. With the Cecil. <laughs> but that, that we know all of these facts and men have no idea is just, it's just. Yeah, well, there's also, you know, there's a reason that I'm not super friendly when I'm alone in public in a, in a place that is unnerving. I don't want to be super approachable. I, that is, that has gotten me into trouble a couple of times. And so I think that's something that people don't necessarily understand too. Everything we do out in public is deliberate and kind of a product of what we've experienced. 
Um, what's the best craft lesson you've learned? So I think it's two things. One, just keep going, right? Because if it can be done, you can do it. There's no reason you can't. And then two, I would say, don't be afraid to go without a pattern. Just get weird, get creative, have fun. One thing I really like is that you have these beautiful sentences talking about scary things. Did you have to consciously put to that together? And if so, can you teach our readers how to do that too? So I think that's just my brain. <laughs> I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy to hear that you like the sentences. I, I do think that's just how I, how I see things in general and how I, just how I think about things. I, I, I do find that when I have a story that ends up being viable, it's usually the one where I had to try the least. If I find myself really trying to get it to, sit right or sound right, it's usually the wrong idea and it usually ends up not ringing true. There's a line that says love, especially the adolescent kind, is a form of murder. It lures, it promises, and then it destroys. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about that? So I think that there's lots of different kinds of love that can be encompassed there. There's kind of love of family and community and then also partner. And when you love somebody, and I think in this particular case, she loved somebody that she knows she's only going to have a limited amount of time with somebody that she's going to kill. And the idea is that she has to jump in with both feet because when you love somebody, you don't miss the detail. It's almost torturous how much you notice somebody when you love them, whether it's romantic love or just you love your child, you love your family, right? And you notice every detail. You almost notice every hair on their head. And in this case, it's I need to love this person completely in order to make sure that I'm not going to make a mistake. And I think she also looks back on her childhood and how much she loved her two sisters. Those are the only people in the world that she had. And her sisters are the reason for every poor decision she's made, right? If they were just two strangers or two friends, she might not have ever revolved her life around them in the way that she had. And I think that's that's part of the message about love that she delivers too, is that love just will make you be willing to put yourself in these precarious situations and harm yourself, you know, emotionally. I can't help but think as you say that, that love of writing makes writers go through a lot of difficult, painful things to get to where they're going to go. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> yeah, it's never been easy. And I think that's that's a big part of it too, is when you're writing, nobody asks you to do this. Nobody is going to come up to you and say, hey, we're looking for a book about X, Y, and Z. Do you want to write it? We'll pay you. You have to do it alone in your house because you think it's going somewhere and because you really enjoy it. And it's nobody's going to pay you on the idea unless you've already established yourself. So it is, it's a lot of putting yourself through it and being willing to throw away a lot of things too to get to the good one. If you were starting again now, what advice would you give to yourself? Oh my gosh, that's such a layered question because the market has changed so much and the industry has changed so much. But I I don't know. I, I think what I would say is don't be afraid to get weird and just use your voice and tell your story. Because if you're trying too hard to fit into what you think is successful, you're never going to change the market. You're never going to have all these different voices. Yeah, it's so interesting that people try to analyze the market, decide what's popular, decide they're going to do that with a tiny twist on it. And then you see people giving up their own 
own authentic voice because they think that the right answer is what's already on the shelves when actually timing wise they're they're a little bit late and they're giving up their authenticity and I just I feel so badly for them because they're trying so hard to do the right thing even though it's probably not as satisfying as writing that weird little book that they just love in their head it also from the time you come up with an idea let's say it takes you a year to write a book and you sell that book it's going to take about two years for it to be published And in that time, the book that inspired you is already obsolete in terms of what the publisher is looking for. So a book that came out three years ago is no longer what they're looking for more of at that Mm -hmm. time. So it's better to just write the book and and see and see what what's changing. And I think in this case with this book, I just lucked out and, and hit a vein where there's a lot of female protagonists in the thriller realm right now. And I wasn't looking at that, but it was just kind of a, a really happy coincidence. But I think if I had looked at the market too closely, I might have said, oh, well, it's either too similar to what's already there or it's too weird. It's not going to fit in. Right. I was, well, I was thinking about the book too. And I was like, cause it has like a killing Eve vibe in some ways, um, different, but you know, and I was like, I thought it was so brave to get, like, there was no one, there wasn't like a detective. There was no one stalking them. It was, it was so much more internal and sexy and steamy. And I, it, I don't have sisters, but my mother has two sisters. And I was like, like the, the complexities that, that you brought through on the page, you know, just left me like, I'm going to think about this book for a long time. I'm going to, you know, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that because it, as part of the writing process, I did try to write a detective. Novel. I wondered, I did wonder that. I tried a lot of things. I tried to be a lot of authors and I have luckily this agent I've been with for so long who would just tell me point blank this you can't carry a whole book in this voice this is not something that you have a strength in or this is not something you'll enjoy and my cat would agree (laughs) and so it was okay I need to play to my strengths I need to figure out what I enjoy what can I write 350 pages of and you know unfortunately for me it wasn't a detective or a cop drama or some of the small town murders I played with because there are these are books I like to read Um, but it was okay I have to sit with what I'm actually able to pull off. I'm glad you didn't go in that direction, though. This is more interesting. (laughs) Can you talk about what that editorial process was like? You know, what you came to your agent with and how you ended up with this book? I gave it a happy ending initially. There there was a little bit less death in my original version. And my agent just very bluntly said to me, this does not pay off. This is not something that readers are going to be happy to get to the end of. And I, my initial reaction was, no, I like it. I like it this way. Leave it alone. But I realized I have a protagonist who's a serial killer and she's got two sisters who have pushed her into this life. And that was the the big part of the editorial process with my agent was I really need to be honest about the outcome and the consequences of living this way. And the fact that I love this character and want the best for her really cannot factor in. I have to put that away. (laughs) And when we sold the book, my editor actually wanted to know a little bit more about her past. And I had hinted at her foster brother, Colin, but my editor found some value in sticking to fleshing that out a little bit more so we can understand a bit more of her story and her past. And it was it was really interesting to see what my editor and agent wanted because it was, this is this young woman who's doing these kind of nefarious things. And I don't know if anyone's going to care about what she wants or where she came from or what she's doing. 
And it was just really interesting to see what the the market was wanting from that. That's interesting too, because I guess I'm the reader who needs to know why she's doing this. And I like that you gave that to us because if she was just like, we're all going to murder people. Okay, next scene. I'd be confused. And I'm glad you added all of that in. But I can see how everyone needs a different set of information to get psychologically there for it to make sense. You don't know what a reader is going to want. That's I think that's the thing. You spend so much time with this story and you're in your own head head so much and nobody else is reading it while you're working on it. And also you, I've had so many books that nobody did want. So I don't even know that this is necessarily the one that somebody's going to want. And so I, all I can do is write it in a vacuum and then share it and see what happens. And I'm definitely one of those writers who loves editing. I'm really, really excited when an editor comes to me and says, okay, I want more of this. And like, let's get rid of this, but put this here instead. I'm just really happy to know that it's resonating with somebody. Can you talk more about that? You've had some incredibly successful books and still not 100% of your books land. Can you talk to writers about that? So I want to say, so this is just me kind of doing some fast math. It's not super accurate, but I would say for every book I've published, there's at least two that nobody wanted um, in my career and in each genre. So I had a picture book. I've written like seven of them. <laughs> one, one has been published. Middle grade, I've written like five or six of them. Four have been published. And YA, I don't even know. It's it's not a, it's it's more than I can think of. And so for this thriller, I want to say I wrote two or three books over the course of five years and nobody wanted them. Some of them were kind of dead on arrival. And some of them, you know, my agent and I really thought maybe we'll get something, you know, this seems hopeful and just nothing was landing. So when I got to this one, I was having fun and I was really excited. And this was one I didn't have to push myself to write. I felt myself really enjoying the process and waking up excited and spending a couple hours on it, but I still didn't know. So it was really exciting to find an editor and then to get to work on improving it. I I love that process. I really do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Can you just, can you think of anything else that might be useful for the writers out there? Our audience is mostly writers who want to get published. And I I feel like some of them are so hard on themselves and they feel like if the first book doesn't work, they're like, oh, I suck. I need a hundred percent success rate or my terrible. So I really appreciate you. Yeah. So for a few years now, I've done a lot of coaching with writers. So whether it's the querying process or just getting through the memoir or fiction, whatever they're working on. And a couple of the common things I hear is, okay, well, you know, nobody's going to want this because who am I, right? And who is anybody, right? All the books on the shelf, these aren't all people who knew a publisher. You have to just have a really good idea. So don't worry about that. You can become somebody and you don't, (laughs) you could- you could write the book that's in your head. And if you find out that, okay, this isn't a marketable book, you'll learn something from that and you can write another one. And, or you could learn, I'm somebody who just wants to self-publish. I'm somebody who wants to tell this story, share it with my loved ones. And there's a lot of value in that. The other thing that I've learned is, oh, well, this is not a number one best-selling idea. So why bother, right? And most of your favorite books are probably not number one bestsellers. The books that impacted your life are probably not number one bestsellers. The books that shaped your childhood, the author might have only gotten $100 to write that book. Some of the books that went on to become very successful had a rough few years. So between not publishing your book at all and being a number one bestseller, there is infinite space. There's infinite advanced sizes. There's infinite types of careers. So write the book anyway. I think a lot of people, they're so focused on the outcome that they're not really willing to learn the process. And it's 
it's not a poor reflection on you if you write a book and it, nobody wants it. It's a learning experience. And that's a learning experience that almost every author, myself included, has to go through. Thank you. I just, I worry so much about the writers out there who are just fretting and fretting and fretting. And, you know, it's it's usually the people who are so talented who fret the most. What is that? Well, I, I do think so. If you're a writer who has a lot of ego, whether or not you have success, you probably would not take ownership of the outcome so much. So if you have a lot of self-awareness and you are really aware of what you want, you might be more afraid of not succeeding. But I, I still think it's always worth it. Always err on the side of doing it anyway, just writing it anyway. And if you get told no, or you don't get the outcome you want, don't think that this isn't for you. Just it, it, understand it's the same as learning how to crochet. You just have to make your personality for a little while. And be willing to say, okay, all those books on the shelf, the writer who wrote those had ideas. They probably had successes and failures too. I can do this. I love that. I had a hard time learning to crochet too. Just as a side note, it took me like a week to click into my brain of like, oh, that's what you want me to do with the first row. Um, yeah. But you, yeah, just as you were saying that, I was thinking of crocheting too, because it's like, yeah, you could think, okay, if I'm going to do this, I have to have the number one Etsy store with crocheted products. Or you can be like me and just make cozies for random objects and yeah. be happy. Yeah. yeah. Or or you could be like me and just like fling the yarn on the wall and it slides behind the couch and it just stays there. And, but at least, you know, you tried. Yeah. If you're not having fun, I guess there's really not a point in doing it. If you don't see a value in what you're doing, then nobody else will. So it's that's why I say really write the things you're passionate about mm -hmm. and do the things that make you really happy and write the story that you really feel good about. And even if it doesn't land, you learn something, you gained experience. Everything is progress. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy we got to talk with you. Like I've, I, like I said, I've been your fan for a long time and this was just such a nuanced, lovely way to inspire the writers out there. So thank you. Yeah. It was also, such a pleasure. Jessica, are we going to give away some books? Uh, yeah. Um, we love to do a thing where the writer gives a code word and the first three people to email us get a copy of the book. So would you give us a code word that people can email? Um, I guess we'll go with kitty because there have just been cats crawling in the background of this podcast. They're wonderful. They look so nice and mellow compared to New York City. Kitty. Very mellow cats. They are very lap cat. This one in particular he will not accept not being in a lap. If he has decided that he wants to be in a lap, he will find a way, even if there's no room like there is right now. <laughs> I want a cat like that. <laughs> but Lauren, thank you so much for being here. And we are giving out three copies mm. of this incredible book. Email us at academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with Kitty in the subject line. The first three will get a copy of this book. No cats will be harmed. Of course, we like cats here. It's just fictional people in the book. <laughs> Um, yeah, Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Where can we find you online? I'm on Instagram at Lauren DeStefano author. Great. We'll put that in the show notes. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you. Lauren, it was so great meeting you. Thank you so much for being awesome. Yeah. Thank you for everything. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.